B under 4. No, any other law would be unreasonable and natural as A. <laughs> okay, next point. It would be impossible for us to fulfill both of those laws because we would have it would go beyond our capacities. Well, it would be impossible for us to fulfill the law that we already understand ourselves obligated to and any other law that someone would present to us that was not in accordance with that law already or a part of that law. Now, the fact that God says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength does not mean that we're always straining every muscle in our body to love the Lord with all of our strength. You say, it doesn't mean that. I will sense myself obligated to put out a particular amount of strength in order to accomplish a responsibility that I have at that time. And if that means picking up an apple and eating it is my responsibility at that time in feeding my body, that I put out the amount of effort that is necessary and thus I fulfill my obligation in loving the Lord with my strength because that's all I sense myself obligated at that time in those circumstances to do. That is my total obligation at that point and I can fulfill my total obligation. If I am standing outside of a burning house and there's a baby inside that needs to be saved, then I sense myself obligated to put out a lot more effort because of the nature of the situation, because of the value of the baby. Okay? I sense myself obligated to put out a lot more effort, and if I do not put out that effort at that point, I will not be loving the Lord with all my strength. You see? And so that changes. When, when you go out the door and, it, and you're the last one and it's your responsibility to turn off the light, it doesn't take much, take much effort to f completely fulfill your obligation. Click. You sense that at that time. It comes to your mind. It's your obligation to turn off the light. You reach up and go, click. Fulfill your obligation entirely. You've loved the Lord with your strength. Okay? Loved Him with all your strength at that point. Because that was all that was necessary. Okay takes a different amount of physical uh, effort to sit down and pray than it does to mop a floor. And yet, when one's your obligation, you sit down and fulfill it, and the other's your obligation, you sit down and fulfill it, love, or stand up and fulfill it. I understand you can sit down and fulfill the other one. Uh, stand up and fulfill it by mopping the floor, and you fulfilled your obligation. See? It takes a different amount of strength. You're not always on the strain, mentally, emotionally, um, with your volition, and so forth. Because okay? it changes in accordance with what we sense ourselves obligated to do. Okay, now, let's um, go on. Let's talk a little bit about the origin of moral law. Where does moral law come from? We've already said that it's a, it's a law of nature. It's founded in reality, but we want to talk uh, a little more about that and get it clear in our heads. We want to talk about moral law in respect to God. We have mentioned already that we as moral beings perceive ourselves obligated to moral law because we are moral beings. Okay? Now, when we talk about God, we have to ask the question, does God have a law by which he has to live? Okay. Does God, we've got to ask that question, does God have a law by which he has to live? And I feel the answer to that is, as you have mentioned already, is yes, and he always has had a law by which he has had to live. The question is, where did that come from? Where did that law come from? Or did it come from anywhere? <laughs> okay. Now, if, you, if God did not have a law by which he had to live, he would have no moral value. Oh. 
We've looked at this once before, I think, but we'll look at it again. In order to have virtue or blameworthiness in a choice, to be worthy of blame or worthy of praise in a choice, you have to make a choice. But in order to make a choice, you have to have a standard by which to, to judge this choice if you're going to try to find out whether or not it's virtuous or whether it's otherwise. See? To find out whether or not uh, your character is blameworthy or praiseworthy, you have to look at the choices that were made, compare them with a standard. And if you don't have any standard by which to, compare, to which to compare your choices, you can't tell whether you're good or bad. And so God would not be able to reveal to us that he was of a certain um, moral excellence that is, that he has virtue, that, that he is loving, that he is merciful, that he's kind, that he's holy, and that these things are good to be, and that we should be thankful for the fact that he is, and we should praise him for the fact that he is, we would, he would not be able to do that if he didn't have a standard by which to judge his actions as to whether or not they are good. Okay? So God must have had a law there all the time because he reveals that he is holy. Okay? He says that there is no darkness in him at all. He's never made a wrong choice. Never done so. Okay? Could have done it, but he never has. Okay? So then, if you don't have a moral standard, you don't have uh, moral virtue or praiseworthiness or blameworthiness or whatever. Now, there are three basic places where people have put forth, people have put forth ideas where moral law could come from. Can it hang on? Okay. Three basic places where people have mentioned that moral law could come from. That is, number one, could come from something other than God, which I believe no serious Orthodox Christian has ever held. <laughs> okay? I put a, a slash here under one because the other one is, this one is other than God and the next two are from God, you see? Then, in talking about the nature of God, we have talked about two areas of the nature of God. About what? Metaphysics and morals. Okay, so it could come from his metaphysics, or it could come from his morals. In other words, it could come from what he essentially is as a being. That could be the basis of moral law. Or it could come from his choices. Now, the common thing that is held in most churches is that it comes from his choices. Or as uh, uh, Calvin put it, said, um, John Calvin put it, said, God's will determines what is right and wrong. God has chosen with his will to, to make right and wrong. Okay? Now, you can see some that what the kind of things there would be with problems here, you know. Um, that if God has chosen to have this be right or wrong, how do we judge if he made up moral law, how do we judge his actions? Maybe his choice to make a moral standard at all was a wrong choice. So maybe he was an evil being, so why should we trust him? Um, you remember I talked with you about um, uh, Kai Nielsen in his book, Ethics Without God. And his first chapter is, goes like this. Christians say that God made up moral law. And if he made up moral law, then we have no way to judge what his actions are like. Before, prior to that time, prior to the time that there was moral law, Therefore, we don't know whether or not he's a good being or a bad being, so why should we trust him? 
so we'll have to live without him and construct our own ethics. You see? All based on the idea that God made up the law, or that the law was a result of his morals, that he chose to say this is going to be right and this is going to be wrong. Okay? Okay. Um, so we have a little bit of a problem there. That is, the law could change at any time. God could say, well, tomorrow murdering is right. You see? And it's everyone's obligation to murder other people. You see? And then you'd have to say, well, that's right. And of course, like I said, you have the problem with God's moral character. I want to read you uh, from C.S. Lewis, uh, Reflections on the Psalms, page 61. He says this, There were, in the 18th century, terrible theologians who held that, quote, God did not command certain things because they are right, but certain things are right because God commanded them. End quote. To make the position perfectly clear, one of them even said that though God has, as it happens, commanded us to love him and one another, he might equally well have commanded us to hate him and one another, and hatred would then have been right. It was apparently a mere toss-up which he, which he decided on. Such a view, of course, makes God a mere arbitrary tyrant. It would be better and less irreligious to believe in no God and to have no ethics than to have such an ethics and such a theology as this. Sounded like he was getting a bit warm there. Um, the Jews, of course, never discussed this in abstract and philosophical terms. But at once and completely, they assume the right view, knowing better than they know. They know that the Lord, not merely obedience to the Lord, is righteous and commands righteousness because he loves it. And he's got a reference that is um, Psalm 11.8, but in our versions it's Psalm 11.7. Okay? He enjoins what is good because it is good, because he is good. Hence, his laws have emeth, or truth. Intri that's the Hebrew word for truth. Um, intrinsic validity, rock-bottom reality, being rooted in his own nature and are therefore as solid as that nature which he has created. Interesting quote. Okay? Saying, basically, that it's got to come from something other than God's choices. It can't come from his morals. It's got to come from his metaphysics. Well, how is this, then, that it comes from his metaphysics? Okay? Well, it's got to be based, number one, it's got to be based on form and not freedom. Don't, don't forget the number one bit. It's got to be based on form and not freedom. Francis Schaeffer has very aptly pointed out, yes, moral law must be based on form and not freedom. Francis Schaeffer has very aptly pointed out that any law has to be based on form in order to be law. If it's based on freedom, how are you ever going to know what to do if the law could always change at any moment? <laughs> you know? if, it, if, if you didn't know that it was, it was right to love people, and it was always right to love people, and it was based on form, and it was a fixed thing, you are to love people, then how would you ever know what to do? Okay? If at any moment it might, be, it might change. Okay? So in God's metaphysics, we have the form that is necessary for the basis of moral law. And in God's morals, there's the freedom. Typical philosophical problem, freedom and form. And so then, that which is uh, flexible, changing, um, constantly uh, going from one thing to another cannot be the basis of law. It has to be something which is stable, which stands the same all the time. And this is God's metaphysical nature. 
So that, this is now in reference to God's reference to himself, you see, God's understanding of moral law. We're not considering the creation and God's reference to the creation at this point. Okay? So then, what is the basis of this? What is the basis of this? Um, let's, let's look at it from our point of view for a moment. Uh, concerning our moral obligation, we'll switch over to our understanding of this. Do we love God? Do we feel our sen sense ourselves obligated to love God because he's bigger than we are? You see? Do you sense yourself obligated to, so obligated to love someone who's smaller than you are? <laughs> yes. I mean, as far as human beings go, there are people that are smaller than I am, and I still sense myself obligated to them just as much as if the person's bigger than I am. It doesn't make any difference as to how big they are. It doesn't make any difference as to how strong they are. Okay? I still sense myself obligated if the person's to them, if the person's lying in bed as an invalid, or if the person's a you know, muscle-bound brute weightlifter. Okay? It doesn't make any difference as to what state they're in. I still sense myself obligated to them because of the kind of being that they are, rather than because of the particular capacities that they might have. Uh, interesting. Anyway, um, let's go on. Um, it's not because the person that we are loving is good. Do we, do we sense ourselves obligated to God because he is good? Now, many of us have based our obligation towards God on that basis. We must understand that that is not a valid basis. We don't love God because he's good. We don't love other people because they're good, do we? We're commanded to love our enemies. So, what they do with their understanding of moral law, does not determine whether or not I'm obligated to them. You see? I'm obligated to love the guy that's squashing my fingers in a vice trying to get me to deny Jesus. doesn't matter what he's doing. I'm still obligated to him. Why am I obligated to him? To love him. It's because of what he is. Okay? Um, it's not, and we're not obligated to other people, this is sort of an extrapolation of the last one, because of the things they do for us. We're not obligated to love God because he does nice things for us. That's not our, our sense of obligation. That isn't where it comes from. God has done many wonderful things for us. That doesn't make us obligated to him. Okay? Now, there are, of course, two different levels of love that, that can, are spoken about in the scripture, and we need to be careful when we're reading to distinguish there's the way that you love the person who is in rebellion against God, and there's the way that you love the person who is in submission to God. I love the person who is in submission, well, I'll take it the other way. I love the person who is in rebellion against God by desiring and working towards their holiness. Now, the person who's in submission to God is already holy. So, I, work in, uh, I love them by desiring their blessedness that they should receive all of the results of the choices that they are making that are right. But I love the person that is in rebellion against God by working towards their holiness to try to get them to do what is right. You see? And I can't work towards the, 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 re, the sinners. If a person is in rebellion against God, I can't work towards their blessedness. They don't deserve blessedness. You see? They deserve to get what, they, what they've chosen to do. If they, 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 they deserve judgment. They deserve a guilty conscience. They deserve those things because of what they're doing. Okay? So I can't, I can't work towards their blessedness. I have to work towards their holiness. And then once they've repented and are choosing to do what is right, then I start working towards their blessedness, that they should receive all of the results of the, of the choices that they are making in their blessedness. Okay, get the difference? Well, yeah. 
basically. The, well, the foundation of it. Can't talk about a metaphysical choice. <laughs> okay? The basis of that. So when it says things like, we love him because he first loved us, is not stating the foundation of moral obligation. It's not stating that. It's stating an emotional response to God because of what he has done towards us. Or that it is easier to do so. You know, it's a lot easier to love somebody when they're loving <laughs> than it is to love somebody when they're a crumb. You know, a lot easier. But uh, anyway, and besides, it's not we love him anyway. It's the him is not in the Greek. It's we love because he first loved us. That is, as we see the example of his love towards us, it teaches us what we should do. And love is a general thing. It's love him, love other beings, love in general. It's not we love him, but it's we love because he first loved us. But anyway, let's go on. Carry on, folks. So it's got to be based on form and not freedom. Well, what is it based on then? What is it based on? Well, it's rooted in metaphysics. And what is it about the metaphysics of a being that obligates us? It is their intrinsic value that obligates us. It is their intrinsic value that obligates us. Thing, if things exist, if a thing exists, it has value, simply because it is. It may have relative, uh, it may have values relative to other things that exist, such as a human being is more important than a chair. We sense intuitively that a human being is more valuable than an animal. And not only have, do we sense this intuitively, but God reinforces that. Jesus says things like, you have much more value than many sparrows. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? The whole world? It's not worth it, you see. So he tells us that the value of one human being is worth more than all of the world. Okay? So not only do we sense it intuitively, but God reinforces it by revelation that this sense is right. Okay? So, on the basis of another being's value, we sense ourselves obligated to choose to do this and not that towards the being. That's what obligation is. We, we sense ourselves obligated to do this and not that because of the value of the being. Or to put it another way, we recognize that if we choose to do this, it's going to bring misery and it's going to bring ill-being to that, to that being. If we choose to do this, it's going to bring well-being and it's going to bring blessedness to that being. And that's why we sense ourselves obligated to that. I'm going to teach you two words now. I'm going to give you the concepts first. And you need to think, be thinking about these things. I'm, um, you guys may go, well, you know, Mike's I can think about those things, but I don't need to. But you need to think about them. <laughs> I believe that God's saints should be the thinkingest people in the world because he's commanded us to love him with all our minds. And since we have the truth, we should be the people that are thinking the most clearly and the most concisely and most critically about what's going on in our culture and our lives and so forth, if we say that we have the truth. Okay, now, we're not going to be behind the rest of the world, folks. I'm going to teach you something. There is a view of morality that says that the choice itself, the choice itself has within it the value of the choice. The choice itself has within it the value of the choice. It is within the choice itself. Okay, So that um, choosing to uh, give something to someone else has within itself its own value. Okay, That's one view of morality. The opposite view of morality is this, that the choice in itself does not have the actual value, but it's the end that is intended in the choice 
that has the value. In other words, if the choice will result in blessedness towards a being, then the choice is a good one. And if the choice is going to result in misery towards a being, the choice is a bad one. Now, the first case, where the, the value of the choice resides in the nature of the choice itself, is called a deontological. view, that is, in, the, in its ontology, in the ontology of the choice itself, in the nature of its choice. It's in there. The other one is called a teleological. You know what a telescope does? Helps you see things that are far away? That's where that comes from. Teleological view is the end out there that is going to be produced by the choice. The second thing that I described. So, Commonly, Christians have a teleological view of morality. It's the end of the choice that determines whether or not the choice is right or wrong, rather than the choice itself. Give you a, I'll give you a, um, um, an example. If I choose to feed the poor, am I doing something right or wrong? It depends. You see? It depends on the end that is intended in the choice. It does, see, we, we commonly look at things like that as being right or wrong in themselves. That's a deontological view of, of morality. You see? We need to recognize that just because a guy has a big smile on his face and the Bible under his arm and goes to church does not mean that he's a Christian. It does not mean that he's making the right choices. And going to church may be because he wants to sell insurance. You see? And I've met a guy like that and we had to throw him out of the fellowship. He came to church to sell insurance. Big smile, always praise the Lord, talking about the Lord, and his whole purpose in being in church was to sell insurance. It was not to, to honor the Lord. See, and we had to deal with those things. Now, th those kind of choices, then, you see, in themselves did not have a good value, quote, quote, they didn't have any value in themselves at all, but the end was wrong in those things, so the choices were wrong. Okay, uh, so just introduce you to those things so you can be thinking about them. The difference between a um, deontological system of morality and a teleological system of morality. Okay, now God's being, God's being is of infinite value and therefore we sense ourselves obligated to him first. God's being is of infinite value and so we sense ourselves obligated to him first. He is to come before everything else. He is to be loved before everything else. That does not mean that other things are not to be loved, but it does mean that if, if it comes to a crunch, he is to be loved first. You see? I am to love myself, I am to take care of myself, but if somebody tries to get me to deny Jesus and threatens to kill me, I love the Lord first. You see? If it comes to a crunch, because his value, is more, his value as a being is more important than the existence of my physical body. I'm going to get a new one anyway, so... Okay? So then I, at that point, must make a choice in priority between loving the Lord and keeping my body alive. And the, the, the proper, loving thing to do for all the beings involved is to love the Lord, to do what is right, and to die at that point. You see? So I have to deny what would commonly be for my own well-being, and in this point, when you look at it really technically, it is for my well-being to die. Because in loving the Lord and choosing to do what I know is right at that point, I'm actually choosing what's best for me too. You see? If you want to look at it technically in that fashion. But commonly, when we, when, to love ourselves, it would be to try to keep ourselves alive. You see? Being responsible towards ourselves. 
in this case, it, love, the loving thing to do is to die. Okay, so because God's being is of infinite value, then he tells us what is honest about the situation, and that is, you shall have no other gods before me, because it's dishonest, folks. See, he's not being egotistical. He's not being selfish when he tells us to praise him, when he says, I'm the most valuable. He's just being honest. <laughs> what can he say? Was he going to say, I'm not the most valuable, and lie? What else can he do? He just says, okay, I'm most valuable. I have to be first. And that's for our good. He says, I've commanded you these things this day for your good. It's for our good to be honest and say, yes, God, you have the most value. You come first. Okay? Man is significant and valuable, and therefore we're obligated to man. But we recognize that on a different order. That man is a created being, and because of man's intrinsic value, that if it comes to a crunch between man and God, that... God has to be loved first. It's only if it comes to a crunch. We're supposed to love everybody, of course. <laughs> okay? So it's what we commonly call it problems with priorities. Now, if, um, if a lady has, a, um, has a, uh, a baby and a dog, and she comes to the place where she only has enough food to really keep one of them alive, which one does she keep alive? She keeps the baby alive. Actually, what she should do is kill the dog, eat it. That's what I feel, personally. I mean, she should use the dog for food, okay? Because God has given us the animals to feel to eat, okay? But uh, that's what happened during the war in Holland. Pets disappeared, just disappeared. They were gone. No cats, no dogs, nothing. People were eating them, okay? Trying to stay alive. And tulips almost disappeared, too, you see? Because they're eating the tulips, tulip bulbs. Okay, speaking of eating, okay, so then, let's go on, because I want to I finish this. So then, she's to give the food to the baby, because the baby has more value than the animal. Actually, she should use the animal for food, okay? And when God says, love your enemy, that indicates to us that it doesn't really matter, you see, what the person is choosing to do. It's because of their intrinsic value that we are obligated to them. Christian value, the idea of, Christ of value in Christianity is not a derived value. It's an intrinsic value. I don't derive my value from anything else. I have value because I am. And I have value because of the kind of being that I am. It isn't derived from anything else. It isn't derived from a relationship. I am not valuable because I know Jesus. As if the unbeliever were not valuable because he didn't know Jesus. Okay? The statement, we are nothing without you, is not true. The statement, we can do nothing without you, is a true statement. Jesus made that statement. But we are nothing without you is not a true statement. Because we are not nothing. A person that does not know Christ does not therefore become unvaluable, or invaluable, however, invaluable is the wrong word, unvaluable, without value. Okay? Invaluable means without price. It means to have so much value that it's, yeah, so you can't use that Yeah, we don't become worthless. Unworthy, but not, not worthless. Okay, um, let's go on. Creation in itself is valuable, has its own sense, has its own intrinsic value, although it's relative to the human being. The creation in itself, of course, has less value. That is, that which is other than human being. And we can't treat the creation just any way we want. We can't do that. And God gives laws in the Bible as to how we're to treat the creation. 
you shall till your fields six years. The seventh year you shall let it lie fallow. That's a command. You see? You can't treat the physical creation just any way you want. If you find a bird sitting on a nest, you can take the birds, uh, take, the, take the eggs, but you can't take the bird. Okay? Preservation of the species. God has certain things. He says, he says, when you come into a country and you're besieging the country, you cannot cut down the trees of the field, um, the, the fruit trees, that is, because the trees of the field are man's life. See? God has things to say about that, about our relationship to the creation. It says in uh, Revelation that when Jesus comes back, he will destroy those that destroy the earth. So we can't uh, do anything we want with the creation that God has made. So then God gives us the proper order, that is God, man, animal, plant, rock. We can find these in different, different relations in the scripture. God, man, animal, plant, rock. And I'm not going to go through the scriptures at this point to show that those relationships. Okay, now, we sense this intuitively as human beings because of value. We just automatically sense the value of something else and we sense that we're obligated to it. And the revelation that God has given of his law as moral governor of the universe is consistent with this law of nature. It goes right along with it. In other words, he demanded of us what we already perceived ourselves obligated to do. He didn't demand something unusual, weird, out of the ordinary, or something that had never popped into our minds before, he didn't demand that kind of thing. He wasn't making anything up, because this is a law of nature. It's the law that he has always intuited. Okay? Now you say, how has he always intuited? It goes like this. He, uh, one of the, the functions of a moral being is to have self-awareness. And he, in perceiving his own being, that is metaphysical being, perceives intuitively his own value, and thus becomes obligated to choose this and not that towards himself. And thus, for all eternity, God has been intuiting moral law because he is a moral being, based on his own metaphysics. You get that? Okay? Okay, so God perceives, as a moral being, he's self-aware, and he perceives his own being. And then as he perceives this being the value of his being impresses itself upon him intuitively because he's a moral being. That's a function he has. So he senses his own value and senses that he should do this and not that towards himself because of his value and therefore he's obligated to himself. And if he made a choice to do what was uh, bad, what was to his ill being, he would be sinning. He would be doing that which was wrong. And so for all eternity, this function of intuition based on his metaphysics has been going on. And so he's had this sense of morality all the way along. If God stopped to exist, so if he ceased existing, for him, moral law would cease to exist as well. If God ceased existing and we continued, hypothetically, we continued existing, we would still sense ourselves obligated. Without God, you see, many people relate the moral law, of the obligation, not to being, but they relate it to the existence of God. They, they relate it to God in the wrong fashion. And so th they think that if God ceased to exist, that suddenly we would no longer be obligated. But if we continued to exist, we would still have value and we would still be obligated to one another to choose this and not that. You understand? I, I give that hypothetical situation because it helps clarify what's, what it is not. 
You see? We're not obligated because God exists. We're obligated to, his val to him because of his value. You see? But just the simple fact that God exists does not make me obligated to Pete. It's because Pete is valuable that I'm obligated to Pete. Okay, um, so God expressed it in ten basic things here. You guys don't want lunch today, do you? <laughs> God expressed it in ten basic things, this moral law. Which are, who's up in their Bible right now? Number one. No other gods. I would like you to note that you shall love the Lord your God is a quote from another place, and it's not from the commandments at all. No other gods. No graven images. Three. Okay. Don't take God lightly. That's what that means, to take God lightly. A lot of people take God lightly by the way they pray. Say in the name of Jesus when they didn't really mean their prayer. That's taking God lightly. Okay, remember the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Do not kill. Do not steal. I don't know if these are in order. Do not commit adultery. I'm abbreviating all these. Do not bear false witness or deceive. And do not covet. Okay. The first four relate to our obligation to whom? God. And the last six relate to our obligation to Man. Okay, so there's two. Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, quoting from Deuteronomy. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, quoting from Leviticus. He said, On these two hang all the law and the prophets. And Paul the Apostle um, said that the end of the commandment, or the main goal or point, or whatever, of the commandment is love. That's First Timothy. Oops. Wrong direction here. First Timothy... One, five, the goal or the end point or the main uh, emphasis of our instruction or commandment is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Love is the fulfilling of the law, Paul said. Love is the fulfillment of the law. He who loves has fulfilled the law. That's from Romans 13, about, about verse 14, 15, something like that. Okay, so love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, this consists in motive in motive, as we saw before, and not in the choice itself. It does not reside within the volition. You cannot tell by the outward volition whether or not the, the, the choice is right or wrong, but it depends upon the end which is intended. The end which is intended by the, by the being. So you have your means to your end. And the means we commonly call the volition itself like giving to the poor. And the end, we commonly call the motive. If you are choosing what you're choosing to the well-being of God and the rest of the universe, you have the proper motive. If you're choosing what you're choosing to the misery of God and to your own self-gratification, you have the wrong motive. 
in life. Okay? So, conclusion here. What is love? What is the nature of our obligation? It is that we should choose to the well-being, because we understand that, because of value. We should choose for the well-being of God and everything that he has created. And we keep that in its proper order. God, man, animal, plant, rock. Okay? Angels come in there somewhere and they change around <laughs> according to what time of history it is, so we have to... <laughs> To uh, be careful with angels, that's why I don't put them in there. Okay? Yes. Love, or the basic nature of our moral obligation, the moral law, consists in this. We understand that we should choose for the highest well-being of God and the things that he has created, rather than choosing for our own self-gratification and thus choosing for the ill-being and misery of God and the other things he's created. We don't commonly understand it to be, I am hating God by this choice. We usually understand it on the other end of it as, I am choosing for myself. You see? And that's the nature of the choice. Choosing for yourself first, rather than putting the highest well-being of God first, because that's, that's what's being honest. To be truly honest with what's going on in the universe, you would have to put God's, God first because of his value. That's the only way you can really be honest. And you're not being honest if you put yourself first. Because you're saying that you're the most valuable being in the universe, and that is not honest. <laughs> find very few people, well, you find some, but you find very few that, uh, that think that they are the most valuable being in the universe. Okay, if they're, if they're going to be honest. Now, so love is a choice. Love is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's a choice. It's not a state of mind. It's a choice. Get that? It's a what? It's a choice. Okay? And in contrast to this, sin is to choose to will not the highest good of God, commonly called self-gratification. It's having, for a motive of life, self-gratification. So, lastly, a couple more points. Love is a choice. We are obligated to this choice by value. Okay. Number one, love is a choice. You've already got that. Number two, we are obligated to this choice by value. We are obligated to choose this and not that by the value of the being. Number three, moral law is intuitive. Or if you want to put it another way, it is self-evident. It's just there because of the kind of beings that we are. Can't help but have it if you're a moral being. Moral law is intuitive. It's a what we call a first truth of reason. Can't go any farther back than that. It's just a first truth of reason. It's intuitive, self-evident, or a first truth of reason. And lastly, moral law is absolute. It is not arbitrary because it is founded upon something that is absolute, and that is the metaphysics of a being. 